Welcome. This is Just a GP. So hi, it's Charlotte Hespy and I'm here today interviewing Penny Burns. So welcome, Penny. Thank you, Charlotte. So Penny's a GP uh, currently practicing out of Sydney and she's doing research in disaster management. So part of today is to find out why on earth you've chosen disasters of all the things that we can do in general practice, your story about how you got there and and the inspiring story about what's so wonderful about doing research. Does that sound like a good starting point, Penny? That sounds perfect, actually. First up, I'm going to ask you what's been a good thing about your week. I'm, can I go just over a week ago? I, um, I attended the declaration of Astana, which is the redeclaration of the Alma-Ata in Kazakhstan. And that was absolutely amazing. It was towards universal access to healthcare globally. And it was affirmed between governments, WHO and UNICEF. And it was all about making, making healthcare accessible and valuable to all the people of the world. And it was just a really powerful, powerful message that was coming out. And talking to GPs in Kazakhstan, I felt like I was talking to GPs in Australia, the same goals, the same desire to have continuity of care, to treat people who needed equity of care. It was it was fantastic. Wow. So how many people were there? There were 1,600 huge numbers and they were from they were globally pacific islands africa asia europe south america north america it was it was a really multicultural group and all with the same aim which was to help people through primary health care and really refreshing to have people that were so supportive of the value of primary health care and you didn't have to explain the value of primary health care they were there already saying we need to build stronger health care systems based on primary care Gosh, that sounds like a, a really inspiring thing to have been part of. Mm. So my good thing of the week was similarly but not nearly quite so inspiring and certainly not in such an out-of-the-way location. So on Saturday night I or evening, I had the honour of being the, the main chair facilitator of 240 new fellows for the RACGP in New South Wales and ACT being actually fellowed. And we did that at Darling Harbour. There was actually more than 900 people in the audience altogether. We had the awards for New South Wales ACT as presented as well. And it was just a really great opportunity to see so many uh, new enthusiastic GPs and to sort of share that moment of them actually becoming fellows was was great, as well as actually sharing the ability to pass, you know, to celebrate the really great achievements in the GP of the year, GP supervisor of the year, and the general practice and those sorts of things. Fantastic! And I spoke to one of the GP um, registrars who was um, fellowing, and they they affirmed that they said it was a great a great celebration. Oh, well, that's that's really good to hear. So now, Penny, maybe telling a little bit about your story about how you've come into being the disaster expert. So I actually have to admit that I was not really interested in research. And as a medical student and as a young GP, I thought it was a bit of a waste of time. I couldn't see why anyone would want to go off and do that when you could actually be busy seeing patients. So I wanted to get out there and do Royal Flying Doctor and go out rurally and, and travel to um, you know South American Papua New Guinea and, and work there and really get stuck into the clinical side of things. I was sick of academia as a medical student and I just couldn't see the point 
And then I ended up, because of my tropical travels, I ended up doing a Master's of Tropical Medicine at James Cook University to upskill. And as part of that, they had quite a few sections in disaster medicine. So there were a few sessions that I thought sounded very interesting. But to my amazement, there was no mention of general practice. And, you know, we were watching disasters strike communities in Australia and around the world. And all these other health professionals were responding and seemed to have a role. And general practitioners just seemed to be forgotten and not mentioned. And, and I'd ask, what were the GPs doing? Oh, I don't know. You know, they, they were doing their own thing. Then shortly following that, I bumped into an old professor and she could see that I was looking for something else besides general practice to get involved in. And she invited me to come and work with her in their disaster response and resilience research group at the University of Western Sydney. So I went there, unbeknownst to me that I was going to be invited to do a PhD and I resisted for quite a while saying I was too old you know these sorts of things Um, and then it just was too interesting so we did some research around the Victorian bushfires and that showed me that GPs were there on the ground being involved but just disconnected from everything else that was going on during the disaster and forgotten and you know after the Victorian bushfires GP practices around the outskirts of the bushfires were inundated with people coming to find a safe pace, looking for medications, looking for continuity of care, looking for support from their friends and neighbours and their trusted local GP. So the role was there. It was really huge. But every single GP was on their own doing what they thought was best at the time. So that sort of made me think we really need to look at what's happening in disasters and how GPs can actually be linked into that response. Cool. So sort of in terms of that then, is does it really matter about the systems? Because it sort of sounds like GPs are pretty good at doing their own thing, but it's about sort of coordinating them and bringing them into the bigger picture. So, yeah, look, it really matters about the system. So so I was sort of curious about this and I was thinking, well, what do people need after a disaster? You know, so maybe we could just have the GPs do whatever they thought was right at the time and, and, and get involved in that way. So, you know, as part of most research, you end up doing a literature review. And so I did a literature review. Um, I did a systematic literature review on the health effects or the health consequences of disasters because I was like, well, I need to know what sort of health effects we're getting from disasters. And I couldn't find a literature review that covered that broadly. There were a lot of literature reviews on what happened after a flood or after a bushfire, but nothing that was really generalist as a GP is a generalist. And so when I looked at um, what was actually happening after disasters and what the health consequences were, there's a really, there's a lot of evidence around these incredible health effects that occur not only on the in the days after a disaster, but in the weeks, months, years and decades after a disaster. Not just mental health effects, which is what everybody thinks about immediately, but also lots of physical effects. So physical effects on diabetes at three months, increased risk of myocardial infarction at three years and four years following a disaster. And also really interestingly, changes in the social determinants of health within a population following some disasters. So this said to me that not only do GPs need to be involved immediately, but they also need to be involved in the longer term after all the other professionals have left when there is this increased need for surveillance for all these other physical conditions that can appear. So that sounds really interesting, Penny. So if we're going to do better in that area, does that mean that when a disaster has happened that we need to actually 
do some sort of targeted education with the GPs so they know who to call in and what sort of programs of support? And is it also worthwhile bringing in, you know, specific sort of targeted programs in those regions? Absolutely. And so, I mean, at the moment, I didn't know any of this till I started doing this review, but at the moment, what would be really, we're not, we're sort of not really um, servicing our disaster affected populations optimally. So we're not really aware of the need of the fact that, you know, three months, anyone who's a diabetic, we should actually be checking their haemoglobin A1C to see how they're going. We need to actually have a system that comes in three months, six months, nine months. We're actually doing particular targeted health checks on particular people with certain conditions. And that's actually really well documented in the literature. Yet at the moment, we're not doing that. That's not seen as a role because the focus in disaster management is very, very acute. So one of the things that really shocked me when I did this literature review was the fact that only 2% of the information or the data on what's happening after disasters came from GPs, 98% came from what's happening in EDs, what's happening in hospitals, what's happening at a population level, but no one actually asked the GPs what's happening at their level. So at the moment, we are a, a forgotten group and those health conditions, those chronic conditions that might occur afterwards are also a forgotten group. So there's a there's a really, really big need and an urgent need to actually have a set of almost guidelines, but I guess advice on what sort of things we should be looking for after disasters and, and how to target certain groups. And that includes mental health as well, of course. And there there is information that shows that early intervention, early management can help change those courses. So what we're, in a way, what I, I see it as is looking at disaster risk reduction. So GPs have an opportunity to get in and change the trajectory, the health trajectories of people that have been affected by a disaster and improve them. So tell me, has there been any research yet in sort of any general practice around what you're sort of um, hypothesising or is this all sort of a, a work in progress? This is all a work in progress and at the moment we're sort of back at the beginning documenting what actually happens and also looking at what's actually happening in general practice and then this would be hopefully what would come maybe even after the PhD but towards the end of the PhD is is looking at how we can change that. There is some work going on this on in this in New Zealand but we're we're a long way off that. One of the really, really simple things that we don't have is we don't have any record of what happens in general or a very small percentage of what happens in general practice when a disaster hits. So we have occasional media things where, you know, Dr. Bloggs was involved in the in the bushfires or whatever and this is what happened. But when you search the literature, GPs are missing. There's no there's one or two pers- people who've actually documented what happened following a disaster and how it affected their patient flow, their patient presentations. But there's very little there. So one of the things we did was we actually spoke to a number of GPs in New Zealand and in Australia to look at what actually happened and what they actually did during the disaster and how they adapted to the disaster scenario. And it was really quite interesting because it was quite different in New Zealand to those two GPs in Australia. So different systems, different health systems and different response and different value. So one of the things that really made me feel a bit sad actually was that in New Zealand GPs are 
involved in the disaster response and included and they feel valued when a disaster happens and they feel they have a role. And sadly, in Australia, I found that the majority of GPs felt they didn't have a role to support their, their community in a disaster and they very nobly decide what that would be and spontaneously reacted in their own way. So they were acting as solo GPs, but they're unsupported and they felt undervalued. Okay, so that's sort of really interesting. So how do we make a difference? And what are the things that just the grassroots GP might be able to do? And what are the systems in place to assist us in doing that? So I think one of the ways we make a difference is, and, and this is what I'm hoping this research will inform, is is to inform a systems change. So to actually have GPs as recognised value contributors to healthcare after a disaster and to have us linked into the existing systems. So one of the frameworks, the way we look at disasters is over the before, during and after of a disaster, if you like. And at the moment, we're not very involved in the before where there's planning going on. So you know, planning what is going to happen if there is a disaster or if there's a huge emergency and planning how we'll be involved and optimising our patient care ready for a disaster. So if we know that there's bushfires coming every September, then we make sure that our patients, particularly with respiratory conditions, have a plan if there's a bushfire ready to go. And then during a response, we might actually have just sat down over a cup of tea in the tea room, even just for an hour and talked about, okay, if a bushfire comes through here tomorrow, what are we going to do? Who's going to man the surgery? Who is there going to be someone who needs to go somewhere else to an evacuation centre? What are we actually going to do? And then the most important thing is in the recovery is linking in again to those systems during the recovery so that we know what all these this extra help is that's coming into communities. So at the moment in communities, we have a, an influx of extra psychological support, caseworkers, all those sorts of things, but GPs are not linked into that. So there's duplication and there's gaps in care because there's two streams of healthcare going on. One's the disaster response and one's the GPs trying to do their usual work. So ideally, we would be linked in across all that period. So I know you've started some meetings across the New South Wales ACT sort of interface with with the different sort of services that are involved. What does that actually look like and will that start to make a difference? Really hoping that that will make a difference. So what we've been doing is pecking away both from the ground level in terms of having a PHN GP model um, in the in the Pan Blue Mountains actually where we put together a sort of a I guess, a, a roles for um, GPs in emergencies document and looking at refining that and having that as a living document. So that's from the ground up looking at actual, you know, frontline responses and what people could be doing. And then also working at it from a state level and then from a national level. So at a state level, we're trying to link in communication between mental health and public health um, and all the different groups, ambulance, so that when a disaster happens, we've got that communication already happening. And then at the national level, which is where pandemics occur, where the GP roundtable, which was developed following the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, we're also working away at that to try and, again, have GPs incorporated through that. And that's actually been the, probably the most successful in terms of in 2014, we had a um, pandemic flu kit that aligned with all the other services so that GPs are now mentioned very firmly in the next response to a pandemic. So we're working way at it in all sorts of at different levels. And then at a 
global level, again, in, in there's been recent meetings and there was one in Kazakhstan around the role of GPs in emergencies. So WHO, Wonka, Donald Lee, the president of Wonka, has also reaffirmed the role of GPs in disasters are all working towards that at that really, really high level. But I must say that they're a long way above the ground and their, their, their words are great, but some of the practicalities that they're talking about are a bit difficult to roll out. So I think that's why you need to have it happening at all different levels. Yeah, so I suppose that sort of brings me back down to what does that mean for me as a GP? And if I'm in a practice where I know that we have disasters happening every now and again, that probably means that I'm more likely that this sort of resonates with me versus, say, I mean, I'm a, an inner city GP. I don't get bushfires. Um, I don't get floods. The thing that would most likely happen for me is, you know, a major air flight disaster happening over Sydney or a, a bombing or something. So do I, I need to plan for those things or what? What should I actually be doing? So, yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? There's different levels of planning. And so I used to work in Roselle and, you know, Roselle is right near where you work and they had their own little mini disaster. They, for them, so a disaster is something that's not coped with by the local community or has powerful effect and requires outside resources um, to support them. So Roselle had a, they actually had an explosion. They had a... Um, a fire in a um, or a little bomb explosion, which created a fire in a in a shop area, which then burnt down the whole building, which killed um, a mother and a child and another man. And the shock waves that that sent through Roselle was was very similar to a disaster. So there were a lot of buildings that were unusable, and I know that the physio came and moved in with us to start working. There was asbestos; the whole community was in shock, and outside resources were required to come in and and wall that off. Firstly, to make sure it wasn't a terrorism attack. So initially, that was one of the considerations, and the local GPs were then seeing very distressed patients coming through who'd been quite affected by this. So that's like a little mini event, I guess, a mini emergency. And so I think those sorts of things can happen anywhere. Bushfires, we've had dust storms come through Sydney where people with respiratory effects or respiratory conditions have had increased presentations to hospitals. So if that was to happen again, you'd want a little bit of a plan about how you might target people with respiratory conditions in your practice, maybe send them an SMS saying, you know, if you with the dust, you know, go inside. Thunderstorm asthma that happened in, in Melbourne, again, GPs actually probably have a really strong role to play there in that they know who their people with hay fever are, allergic rhinitis, and again, they have access to um, outreach for those people or if they present, they're able to manage them fairly quickly. And I know there are a lot of GPs down in Melbourne that were seeing patients during thunderstorm asthma. But yes, you're right. It's not going to be, um, it's less likely to be an event like a major flood like they had in Brisbane or or an earthquake like they had in Christchurch. So I, I think there's benefit even for GPs in the city to just have thought through what if there's a power outage? What if there's a huge storm that comes through and we can't, um, our surgery can't open, can't work anymore, we're going to have to, it's flooded or it's, it's you know, the roof's been destroyed you know, where might we go and work and where, how might we continue the medications of our patients and make sure that they're, that, that health, all those things GPs do really well, that continuity of healthcare, um, that coordination of healthcare, that early surveillance for people who are more distressed by an event that's just occurred, 
all those sorts of things are really GPs do really strongly. And I think even when there's a lesser event, it's still an important role for GPs. Well, there's the issue about the um, electronic records in that too, isn't there? Because, you know, one of the big things is when you do have a power outage, you know, how long is it going to be for if you don't have access to any of your health records at all, then that's a disaster in itself. Absolutely. And probably some of the, you know, during uh, the Hunter's uh, thunderstorms up in near Newcastle, and I think it was 2016, the, the hospitals were full, there was flooding, GP practices were flooded, they were out of power, they didn't have, act, you know, their mobile phones weren't working. And so during that time in Sydney, we were seeing patients coming down from the Hunter looking for medications, some patients on SAs looking for continuity of medication. And, you know, it sounds like a, a, a small disaster, but it's actually got the ability to impact on, on healthcare and, you know, diabetics and those that require ongoing medication in particular. Also, we know that it increases blood pressure in those that are hypertensive and those that aren't hypertensive. So there's a lot of roles for GPs in just being alert to what certain more environmental population level events, the effects they have on the community. Again, a cultural event that affects a particular culture, you know, like if there's an event where one particular culture feels that they're being affected more, then you're going to get a lot of a lot more presentations in your general practice. So I think as GPs, we need to be very aware of what's going on in our community and then be very active in looking for those that might be more distressed by that. And that includes terrorism as well. Simple things like during the Sydney siege, one of the things we did was we tried to get um, information out to GPs around the importance of not letting children sit there and watch that reiterative playing of that siege over and over again, where you know, with the girls running out in absolute distress. Because again, that we know that that has effects on children. So there's a lot of things that GPs can be doing even if they're not in a rural area. Yeah, so it's sort of like it's that you've got quite a lot of things to have to sort of think about and that's where you can pre-plan on one front. So you can sort of think about how do I manage my files, how do I actually do I have a kit that I can take with me if I need to be somewhere else um, and or if my own location is flooded or burnt down and then what are the sorts of things I need to actually be prepared for for the acute moment of my own patients, then of the patients coming into me, and then that aftermath problem where, again, it's not just your patients, it might be the whole community that has all sorts of uh, after-event type shock and needing to move on to the next stage of healing. Absolutely. And then, of course, the other thing is to have your own house in order, if you like. So to have thought about how it might affect your family and yourself and to have that in place because, I mean, GPs are amazing. You know, in the, the GPs I've spoken to, they've all gone out of their way to support the community knowing that they had a family that was also affected, their own family was affected. And, you know, one GP was up in the surgery seeing patients really distressed presenting during a bushfire while his own house was under threat and a neighbour was updating him with what was happening. It's such a responsible thing to be doing, but it's also a very, very difficult choice to make when you, you know, you need to make sure your children are safe if they're at school and you're in practice down the road. So I think I know there's no there's no magic answer. There are guidelines to this and, and, and they're available. But I think one of the simplest things to do is to just sit down and go through, okay, what's the most likely thing to hit this surgery? Okay, it's just a storm. It's a storm, power outage, bit of flooding, maybe, you know, a bit of uh, one of the rooms we can't use. What would we do? And just go through that. Just take an hour, go through it. And 
even if you've done that, when an actual event occurs, you are going to be much more prepared because we know you get that foggy thinking when a disaster really happens. And so to try and problem solve and make decisions once it's actually happening is a lot harder than beforehand. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that for my own practice, you know, we'd we'd put together a kit for just when if the server crashed, you know, that's not a disaster for an external disaster, but it was a disaster for you as a practice. And just having the folder ready when that happened was amazing and it just meant that it was so much better actually having a record of who the patients were going to be coming in and having some concept of how we were going to manage all of the sort of otherwise electronic things so I'm I can well see that having a plan for each sort of different sort of scenarios and then who's the main contact which then sort of brings me on to that next element because so that's the bit that we can look at within our own practice but then maybe even having that relationship with the community and with so with your primary health network and with your local health district about what might be your role if a bigger disaster did happen and you know where are the local places that you might be needed to go. Absolutely. And that's all about the beforehand and the preparing and the connection beforehand. One of the things that's come out fairly strongly from a number of different disasters is the the benefit of peer support. So even having a, a another practice that you bounce off in those situations um, or even in the recovery. So after Christchurch, what they did was they got Auckland practices to buddy up with Christchurch practices and that worked really well. Some of them sent staff down to sit down and help you know see patients others of them just sent chocolates and teddy bears you know we're thinking of you and it was a really really lovely way of of getting that support after a really traumatic event so yeah I think thinking through those sorts of things linking in strongly with the pharmacy before it happens you may be a lot of the time you're a zero responder as a GP we did a scenario where there was an earthquake in Sydney and it's possible where transport and utilities were down for days and in fact the utilities were down for weeks. And what this meant was that in your little local area, you were cut off. And so the health services there were the hub. So your local pharmacist, your you know your local grocery store, if there's local pathology um, and the local GPs. And so you have that little network that's able to continue supporting patients who present to you. That's fascinating. Just that whole sort of, as you say, concept of, yes, make sure that the networks that you've got are good. And I think that then goes to that whole bigger picture of saying, you know, the more integrated we are at the moment and able to see that we're part of a bigger system, then you probably already got those social networks in place anyway that then make it a bit easier to have conversations about what this might mean if we are going to come together and work collaboratively in a disaster. Absolutely. And the other thing too to remember as um GPs is that that has happened on numerous occasions where you see someone out of Japan after the tsunami. You see people who've been affected by the Bali bombings. Every time there is a terrorist event, there is a a ripple effect or a trigger there for those people. And there's growing numbers of Australians that have been affected by disasters. So the other thing for GPs is to be aware of those people within their patient population who've been affected by trauma and the effects that that has on their, again, on their health trajectory, the effects on their mental health, on their coping. And that's not to say that most of them aren't really resilient and really strong and have strengths to bring to it. But it's also 
just saying, you know, if there was something that happened that was traumatic in their life at that point in time, it's it's important to remember that as part of their health care. And I've definitely seen that on a number of occasions. Absolutely. And I mean, as you said, I think one of the key things I heard from that was understanding that the disaster has that long-term health implication, which of course we know that makes complete sense, but you don't necessarily think when you're seeing someone in that acute moment, okay, I now actually need to schedule them in for the ongoing care and make sure that the ongoing implications are managed effectively. Absolutely, yeah. So is there anything else you think we haven't sort of covered that you would like to share about some of the things you've learnt through being into disasters like this? I guess this has really changed the way I look at things and I've become much more involved. I was always interested in children, but now I'm particularly interested in children and trauma and those effects on their health. And I guess after the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, which shows very strongly the physical and mental health effects that occur after trauma, I guess this has just sort of opened my eyes to a whole lot of other events that occur that we're seeing in general practice that I wasn't probably aware enough of beforehand. But the other things that being involved, not just in disasters, but in research, is that it's actually encouraged me to write more and get more out there. And I think that's really, really valuable because I I do see that one of the things as GPs is that so many people think that we just refer and write scripts. So many people do not know what we do. I sit on mental health disaster committees. I sent on all sorts of things. And people say, oh, do GPs do mental health? Oh, can GPs do that? And I'm like... Yes, and they're trying to create a role for someone else to do something when, hey, GPs can do that. And I think it's really, really important that through research, we actually get out the voice of general practice and we explain to people what we're doing and and what's happening at various times with GPs so that we actually improve our profile. There's a lot of advocacy, I guess, that needs to be done for GPs. And I see that evidence-based and research are the key ways of getting us out there. Oh, absolutely. And and we're we're fairly overwhelmed because we have so much that we need to do and there's so much multimorbidity and chronic illness out there. But at the same time, we're, we're there. We're at the coalface. We are so skilled that we can be used very easily in doing that. And and by and large, there's enough of us. We might be in some of the wrong places and we could spread ourselves a bit further, but um, we are pretty fortunate in that respect, aren't we? Absolutely. And we also have such an opportunity to do research and to get stuff out there because we've got these large patient populations that come to us. And so if you're interested in something like diabetes or any particular thing, even doing a survey, you know, it's not difficult to do Um, and linking in with one of the universities who are often you know running courses or doing things to encourage GPs to get involved in research I think it's a really valuable thing to do I'm hoping that with the increase in research teaching that's occurring amongst medical students that there will be an increase anyway a spontaneous increase in research amongst general practice but yeah Well, there's certainly lots of things that they can look at, particularly the adverse child events. I think, again, something that in general practice we can't get away from because we we see every single day um, numbers of people who are affected um, long term by events that have happened to them in childhood. But then we also see the children so we can, you know, have a a lot more insight into understanding about the need to be looking after them as they're going through those traumatic events. So it's just we're surrounded constantly with not only areas that we can research but areas that we can make a difference here and now. Absolutely. No, absolutely. 
So, Penny, I might draw us to a close. But before you go, do you have a clinical tip that you'd like to um, share with us? I guess sticking to my theme, I think it's really important to ask the question. So we do a medical history, but we don't tend to ask whether there's any other significant events that occurred in people's lives that are really important or have had a really powerful effect on them. And I, I actually think that doesn't necessarily have to be the first visit or the second visit, but I think if you're caring for someone, I think it's really important for you to just ask that question. And I think you'll get a lot of information from that. And it'll also give you a lot more knowledge around what makes that person tick. I, I know we had a patient recently who um, I was first notified of them because they were not taking their medications, hadn't turned up to take their Webster pack, tried to contact them. That was really difficult. Looked at their medications, realised that probably they were pretty much okay. There was just a bit of blood pressure there and it wasn't, it had never been too high. Managed to get onto this person. This person said, no, I'm choosing not to do anything at the moment because I've got something going on for me. Then what happened was a week later, this man presented and he explained that he'd gone through the Holocaust and that this was the anniversary period for him. And at this time, he didn't care about anything else. And having known about that in advance would have made it a lot easier for us to understand and be sympathetic. And it was a really powerful thing for us to understand about him and his health and who he was. So that would be my clinical tip is just take the time at some point to ask that sort of question and don't be afraid of the answer. Great. And some of the really most useful tools I've been finding often for some of my patients is actually using online mood treatment type modules. So Mood Gym is the one that I've use the mm. most um, with my patients and been doing that probably for quite a few years. And I'd gotten involved with um, a research program with ANU when they were looking to see whether Mood Gym was as good as um, a psychologist and whether it was made even better with having a GP doing it. And I just sort of, I, I find it really good because it's easy to refer patients to. So I just say, you know, go and Google Mood Gym, go and find it create you know an account for yourself and then once every one or two weeks do one of the modules and then come back and talk to me about what you've learned and it's sort of really interesting because most people will relate to what they see on it and even if it's too basic or not quite right there's always a gem that they can take away and it's that whole activated health literacy type things giving them something to do that means that it's much more likely to make a difference in using the other things that they learn as well. Yeah, fantastic. And I think that's actually, you know, that actually brings me back to disasters in a way. And one of the things we know is that just talking to people about what's happened is not as useful as giving them a task or giving them an action. So giving them agency and something to do, particularly adolescents after disasters, you know, giving them a responsibility or something to make them feel that they're actually actively doing something. So fantastic. Great. Well, on that note, I'll say thank you so much, Penny. That's been really interesting. I've certainly learnt, well, I've got an insight as to how you got into disasters and that was great. Also into research and hopefully there'll be some other people there who realise that they've been asking similarly similar questions about something that might actually lead them into being able to do some really meaningful work that can make a difference to not just themselves, their own practice, but actually the bigger community. So thank you and keep up the good work. Thanks, Charlotte. Bye. Bye.